I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. And this is a workshop episode where we discuss and collaborate on work made by our listeners in the Out on the Wire working group. Each regular episode, we pose a challenge for listeners so you can develop your own stories. The Working Group is an online platform where you can post your responses to the challenges and get feedback from fellow listeners and from us. And then in our workshop episodes, which happen every other week, we choose some of the interesting work and talk about it to see if we can help move it forward. My collaborators today are Benjamin Frisch, producer of Out on the Wire. Hello. And fellow cartoonist, Matt Madden. Hi, everyone. Getting involved in The Working Group is easy. Just sign up for a newsletter at jessicaable.com slash podcast, and we'll send you an invite. And if you're having trouble getting into the group, just send Ben or me a message through my website or on Twitter, or on G+, for that matter, and we'll fix that right up for you. Ben is especially good at this, and he's at Benjamin Frisch on Twitter. Today, we're responding to a challenge posed in Episode 4, Bare Bones. And the challenge was... Do a story Mad Lib. Someone is motivated to do this thing he's doing because of this. But then this happens, so he has to do this. And therefore, this, which leads to this. And finally, you won't believe it, but this. And the reason this matters to everyone walking the face of the earth is this. And remember, as you lay out the chronology to focus on conflicts, turning points, and moments where there's a dilemma. If you're missing hunks in the middle... That's okay. Just get as far as you can. And that last bit of the of the Mad Lib is for everybody. You want to check yourself now. Are you making a story that's just weird or exotic, or does it have something larger to say back to the world? If you're making a character-centered work, you additionally want to make sure you're clear on two things. Uh, what is the spark uh, or the inciting incident? And then define the question that it poses for the protagonist that the ending will need to answer. If you're working in nonfiction, you may not know the answers to these two questions yet uh, before you interview, but you can certainly identify your options. So every workshop, we try to pick some stories that reflect some of the most interesting things that came up on the group for that challenge. And I have got to say, this was an extremely interesting week. The Mad Lib is really asking people to get deep, seriously into the work of imagining their stories. And that kind of work raises all kinds of questions. And I could easily have picked 10 stories to talk about today. They are that good. Oh, and by the way, if you're planning to write a novel in November for National Novel Writing Month, as several of our members are... I cannot give you better advice than to do the challenges in our first four episodes right away as prep. And then you'll get yourself totally set to jump in on November 1st. Be ready to go. So the first story we're going to talk about today is by Ling Lo. Matt, you want to take it from here? Sure. All right. So Ling writes, Stacy Little is a motherless teenage outcast who dreams of being a fashion designer because she wants to escape the small provincial city where she has lived in lonely poverty with her distant father. But then she meets a bunch of eclectic middle-aged women at a local sewing group, and they force her to actually try to achieve her dream. Therefore, Stacy starts making a dress that she can enter into a regional design talent competition, where the winner gets an interview at a design school in London. This leads her to start spending more time at the sewing group. The women help her by contributing fabric, skills, and encouragement, but they don't know that she is skipping school. Then, the night before the competition, her father finds out she's skipping school and grounds her. So she can't enter the competition, and she's back to square one. 
Then the sewing ladies actually talk to Stacy's father because they are worried about her. Finally, and you won't believe this, but Stacy's father actually sits down to talk to her for the first time in years and gives her a new sewing machine. Stacy decides to apply to the local art school and goes to personally see the lecturer with her portfolio. Stacy decides to apply to the local art school and goes personally to see the lecturer with her portfolio. She finishes her time in high school by wearing the dress she designed to prom, holding her head up high. And the reason this matters to everyone walking the face of the earth is that most of us hesitate to act on our dreams, and sometimes you need other people in your life to see your potential before you see it yourself. And these people can help you to grow into your own hero or heroine and believe in yourself. Okay, that's a good one. Ling has done all the other challenges as we went along, and this has developed pretty far. We've seen it developing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um and at this point, it feels like it's got all the pieces in place to be a functional story. But I guess my main concern at this point is it hasn't quite crossed that line to something truly unusual or, you know, something I haven't seen before. And my, my comment to her in the actual um, discussion on the group was this reminds me of um, Strictly Ballroom, where like the, the girl wants to dance um, – and goes to, you know, learn dancing and then she she overcomes her stiff bad dancing by learning Spanish dance. It's a, you know, something full of energy and feeling and emotion and whatever. And she wins the contest, you know, and and mm-hmm. wins it in this spectacular way. So it's really similar to that kind of arc and um so every time I'm coming to her, I'm like pushing her to think think through like how what can we add to this story? What elements can we add? I mean, the the reference point that she's brought up before um, is Cinderella. And I mean, it, it is literally sort of an updated take on Cinderella, um, you know, with the sort of fairy godparents and the uh, the father is sort of, I guess, the evil stepmother role um, here. But I, I, one of the reasons that I, I thought to use this challenge this week is I think that Cinderella is a really... Um, difficult story, actually, because it doesn't follow a lot of the rules that we talk about in that Cinderella is a pretty um, passive protagonist throughout much of the sort of, at least the Disney version uh, of the story, where it's like she has some agency, but she's sort of able to do these things with the the help of other people. And that that presents a lot of problems if you're if you're writing a story because your protagonist has to be the person whose will pushes the plot forward. Right. I mean, in terms of Cinderella, I guess I would say to that, that in some ways, uh, all of the the sort of fantastic elements can be seen as sort of aspects of her personality, you know, the fairy godmother and the, the little mice helping her sew her dress and stuff, and that she does have agency, but it's expressed through these outside characters. Um, maybe that's one way to think about how the Cinderella story uh, fun- still functions as a narrative. Um for me, the other missing element or that needs to be developed for there is the, is the father. Like you're saying, it's like he sort of takes the role of the evil stepsisters, but all we know that he's, he's distant and he does and then he gets a bit mad when he finds out that she's sipping school. And that's to me that that's maybe a, a, a pressure point where uh, where she could build up a bit more pressure, make him, you know, more more than just distant. Maybe he's abusive or else that there's some his distance is related to some kind of. Uh, trauma or loss that he's he's dealing with, you know. Basically, it seems like there's a father, an important father-daughter drama here. That at this point is kind of in the background, and maybe bringing that more to the foreground would be a way to ramp up the general 
uh, pressure and excitement of this story. And early on, too, because mm-hmm. it yeah, seems yeah. like this sort of the, the climax as it sort of stands is happens, um, you know, late in the game when she's sort of confronted with her father. Maybe that's part of the spark. I don't know. Right. I was just thinking as we're talking here, what, you know, one of my issues with the with the setup is that the um, sewing circle ladies just are so benign. They're just they're at least at this point, they're just like just helping Stacy do her thing. Right. What's their agenda? Well, no, not much of their agenda. But, you know, yes, they're old ladies in a sewing circle, but they're going to have personalities and going to have different um ways of engaging with this this snotty teenager who comes in and sort of busts up. I mean, you know, maybe they're like she becomes good friends with one of them and another one whose friend it is is sort of jealous. Or, you know what I mean? Um, but so what just occurred to me in terms of the father was what if the um, the way that she meets the sewing circle ladies is somehow through the father? Like not that he introduces them, but like they're the same generation probably or close to the same generation. What if it's, you know, his colleague at work or what if it's I don't know what, you know, like some somehow – He's implicated in getting her into this group, and then she has weird mixed feelings because it's like somehow attached to her father. I, f- I forget if it was me who suggested it or if it was Ling or if it was somebody else, but I, I think at some point in talking about the story, um, someone brought up the idea that, that she's somehow sort of forced into this group, like maybe as like she's kind of a bad girl and it's like community service that she has to like work with these people. And Oh, yeah. Like... Uh, I, I think she needs there just needs to be more um, there needs to be just more pressure on her as a character to sort of put her in situations that she finds uncomfortable right. and then sort of learns. to. Right. I mean, there is no dilemma here. You know, there's never a moment where it's like, should I really make this dress and try to get into art school? Uh, yeah, you should. Like, what's the what's the downside of that? You know, like, what's the real dilemma? What's she going to lose if she does that? That's actually that's an interesting point about like stories that are sort of about like achieving your dreams or whatever. Maybe that's one reason that they sort of often come off as kind of trite is because. I mean, given the option, yes, you're always going to go and achieve your dreams, but maybe in in real life, it's it's not nearly so clear cut. I mean, it comes at the sacrifice of something. Right. Mm-hmm. So like in this case, it could come at the sacrifice of her relationship with her father. Mm-hmm. You know, that actually if if the stakes were that like if she does this thing, she will be disowned like he is not OK with this. Mm-hmm. And that is going to you know, whether he comes around at the end somehow or not, like it has to feel like that is the, really the choice, you know, or if she does all this stuff, she's going to fail high school and she fails high school. She can't get in. You know, she can't get into art school because she won't have her degree or I mean her diploma or whatever. Like if there there needs to be something at stake for her that she has to overcome by overcoming her disdain, say, for these ladies or something. You know, there, it, it, we just, the stakes have to have to get raised, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one final element that I don't I didn't see addressed in, in the earlier in, in the the, um, the thread is uh, the issue of the missing mother. She's just sort of motherless, as a matter of fact, in a kind of fairy tale way, which might be fine, you know, but it, but it's another point like the, the, the fact, you know, part of the, for example, part of the father's, you know, uh, meanness and reluctance to let her go is like she's actually all he's got left in the world, uh, you know, something along those lines. Uh, or he murdered her and, uh, you know, the only way she's going to find out if she starts making, uh, you know. I got an idea. I've got an idea. What, what if the mother left the family? She she split. Mm, to mm-hmm. be an artiste. To be an artiste, possibly. Um, and the connection to the old ladies is that one of them is like her aunt or some, somehow related to her. 
and gets in touch or something. And that's why the father doesn't want Stacy to be associated with them because they're aligned with the mother. And the mother has been a totally unacceptable parent. Yeah, I was, I was definitely been thinking that uh, the sewing circle women have to have some secret connection to her family, whether to the mother or the father, something in there that uh, that's not just sort of like, and she randomly meets these nice ladies who teach her how to sew, that there has to be some, some way that comes back around. Yeah, and, and I think that's where the sort of use, universalizing piece is probably too, sort of stuff about family or mm-hmm. about, you know, dad issues, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, that's fertile ground. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's see. Should I read the next one? Sure. Okay, so next we've got a nonfiction story by LaVon Ellis. Brain-injured Vietnam vet Ronnie Murphy, a Native American who fought for his country as a teenager and lost his future, is motivated to appeal a case of mistaken identity with the Veterans Administration because it has led to his losing over $70,000 in disability benefits. The VA insists that Ronnie was wanted on a fugitive warrant for several years back in the 90s and was overpaid because he was ineligible during that time. But that was another guy with the same name and the same birthday, but a different social security number. But then his appeal is denied, and so he has to hire a lawyer who eventually gives up, and other lawyers refuse to take the case. And so he writes to his congressperson, but that goes nowhere. And therefore, he contacts a local radio station, which leads to his being interviewed on the air. And finally, you won't believe it, but the talk jock, who had promised to keep Ronnie's case in the public eye, mysteriously drops the story like a hot potato without explanation. Ronnie is now in his 60s and has health problems. Will he even live long enough to see justice? His final appeal has been stuck in Washington for over three years now. And the reason this matters to everyone walking the face of the earth is because justice, we need to be able to trust government to treat us fairly and that people in power will keep their word about helping us when things go wrong. But we know that's not always true. And it's important that we can trust the system to provide little guys like Ronnie with the right way, with a way to right wrongs. Do you see this as like a, a piece about advocacy? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think yeah. she's she's trying to tell his story in a way so that she can right this wrong. I mean, she's mm-hmm. trying to make justice. It's like the there's, story. there's so many dead ends here. It seems like it would be hard to construct like a, a story around uh, his character, maybe, because at least at this point, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that there are so many dead ends or there's so many things that have ended uh, and there's I just have a lot of questions about this guy and like, why have all these things not worked out? I mean, why was his appeal denied? Uh, did they not believe him that he has a different social security number? Where is this other guy? You know, and all of this stuff is stuff she doesn't know yet. She hasn't done the research yet. And that's fine. It's fine that she doesn't know that thing. But I I feel like we don't react that well to stories where there are no open questions or where we're just told like this guy's likable you should like this guy you know we need to see him facing these challenges and kind of going through these challenges and understand how he has some chance of overcoming them but then doesn't you know mm-hmm. um i feel like that's going to be something that's going to be a real issue to me there's a lot of the a lot of the interesting questions i have are just st- strictly a matter of um a research and knowing uh which maybe you guys i, I don't know if if is she in touch with Ronnie Murphy? Is this someone she's going to be able to interview yeah, and have yes, a uh, she's friends with him, first yeah. person source with, like Adnan, you know, Said, uh, or uh, you know, because that that'll be a lot of it. Um, and I do I do think it's going to be, um, yeah, like a, the story is going to be trying to to fix this, not just what happened, but how can you actually move forward to uh, connect these dots that are already there and and 
um, bring some attention to the case. Um, whether that would lead to closure or not, of course, is a uh, whole other question. You know, whole other question. Yeah. And she actually said in the previous challenge, she's in the character challenge, she said that she was thinking that she would be the protagonist. And she hasn't written this with her as the protagonist. She's written this with Ronnie as the protagonist. But um, I could see a situation where she starts doing this research and she becomes the protagonist through the research because the research is the story, like figuring out what's going on and trying to get to the truth. The detective story potentially is the story here. You know, we haven't really talked, I guess, about like advocacy journalism or advocacy storytelling. Do you think that there is a different approach to take? No, I actually think that um, one of the biggest personal, this is my personal opinion, but I feel like one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they are involved in advocacy is that they um, preach to the choir. They don't, you know, the choir already is voting your way, already believes you and is already supporting you. And there's certainly a place for those moments of like, yes, I believe it. Yes, we're together. But like mostly when you're bothering to make a whole long piece about something, the people you want to talk to are the people who who don't understand and who don't know what you're doing. And you, the way to engage them is through a really strong character-based arc. I mean, that really is, and there's so many, like, advocacy stories typically revolve around injustice being done to people, right? But, um, you know, they tend to portray those people as being very, very much victims and very blameless. It's not complicated. And, and the danger is that we end up pitying those people and not feeling like that could be me, which is what you want. You know, you want you want people to you want the listeners to walk in the shoes of that person, not to look at them from across the room and go like, oh, poor thing. That's so terrible what happened. OK, I'm going to go shop for groceries now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we shut that off. We're not like pity is a, is a feeling that nobody likes to feel on either end. The main thing in terms of portraying him as a full person is making sure that he has both good points and bad points, and that and that he has weaknesses uh, or deficits that are feeding into this story as well. That he has dilemmas that cause people, not only himself, but, you know, cause pain. Or, you know, that he has to make certain choices about certain kinds of things. Um, I mean, I think the elephant in the room for me with this story is like, what if there really isn't another Ronnie? Ooh, serial territory. Yeah. What if... You know, like if she goes into this story being willing to consider that possibility, I mean, it's probably not true. Probably there is another Ronnie and this is all this horrible bureaucratic mistake. But um, if she goes into this willing to be skeptical of him to that degree and treat him not as a friend, but as the subject of a series of interviews I think she'll be able to build a really strong story around him. Mm-hmm. But if she goes into it just like wanting to be Ronnie's pal, that's when she's going to run into trouble, I think, in terms of telling his story strongly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so should we move on? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this story is by uh, Matthew Vincent. Uh, first thing I'll do is I'll read his focus sentence, which is Ashby, the stubborn antiques dealer, goes on a journey to track down the maniac marketing guru who he hired who stole the one item in his store that wasn't for sale. But the more he uncovers about her life, the more he begins to understand his own life. 
uh, his Mad Lib is Ashby is motivated to track down this manic stranger who he believes stole something from him. He discovers she skipped town and no one takes him seriously, not even the authorities. So he takes matters into his own hands, vigilante justice, and therefore he tracks her with his nonspecific set of skills. The more info he uncovers about her life leads him to serendipitous analogs within his own life. He begins to believe in big ideas like fate and destiny, and finally, you won't believe it, but he finds her in Venice at one of the lowest points in her life. And oops, she does not have the thing, and the reason this matters to everyone walking the face of the earth is we all often desperately search for that one thing that represents our identity more than anything, that one thing we cling to most, only to discover that we have to learn to live without it. Um, uh, also, he uh, he wrote an XY as well, um, in which he describes the character um, in a really interesting way, where he says Ashby, an antique an antiques dealer with declining sales because of his attachment issues. I had uh, trouble piecing this one together. I feel like there are several puzzle pieces missing from the basic structure, especially this the as he called it, the manic stranger, which we learn also from the XY is like a marketing person that uh, he hires to help her to help him. Um, you know, uh, sell stuff at his antique shop better because he's got attachment issues. It just felt it felt like a very thin thread connecting these various plot points, and uh, and in part it might just be a matter of writing some more to to get through it and get learn more about what what actually happens. The reason that I was attracted to this story, um, and the reason I I chose it to talk about today actually is is mostly the character. I think the character is really interesting. He, yeah, I, he, I think an antiques dealer with attachment issues, like an, it, basically the idea that he can't sell the stuff that is in his store, he can't manage to get rid of it, uh, is a good idea. Like that's that's a good underlying. I mean, it's you know, it's irony again. It's like mm-hmm. um, he can't do the thing he has to do. Like so, there's this like really strong internal conflict, and but, he's attached to things and not to people like he can't he doesn't like people he doesn't want to be around people he can't attach to human beings but he can attach to old things and i mean i'm a cartoonist i've met people like this they exist (laughs) um but the i think it's a productive structure for a character um but i'm not sure he's playing it out in the arc yet yeah i this actually uh both you know my reaction to to the the um, the mad lib Actually brought David Mamet to mind to me in his uh, infuriating but very but sometimes very enlightening book on directing film, which I recommend you reading. We'll put a link in the in the, in the show notes. In yeah. show notes. Um, and uh, you can there's a lot of stuff to, to to quibble with in Mamet's approach, but one but there's a certain value to um, a basic idea he has, which is that uh, he really strongly argues that um, that character and story develops through action and not through saying he's such and such a type of person. And there's very fun, numerous funny, uh, you know, um, uh, digressions uh, postulating like, oh, so he's the type of guy who uh, holds on to stuff. And he basically tell you to jettison all that stuff. And I feel like that's kind of like what Matthew's struggling here in his own notes because he's saying, well, he's got a problem with uh, attachment and he starts thinking about faith and he learns about life, you know, all with the capitals, you know. And he's in his own notes. He's saying, I, I know it needs to be more specific, more specific. Um, and that's because it seems to me like this is guided by the idea of he wants to do a story about someone making discoveries with a capital D about life with a capital L and fate with a capital F without actually figuring out the step-to-step, you know, 
uh, ways that's going to happen, the kind of interactions, the kind of actions that are going to be performed and reactions that are going to actually lead to something that would be uh, actually, you know, relevatory to this character. Yeah, I think that's right, that, that you only get those kinds of revelations to hit home if they come naturally. They come out of the dilemma and out of the actual um, stress that you're putting the character under. Um, I guess my first point for him, I guess my first suggestion for him would be, let's go back to the very beginning of this, marketing guru? Like, how is a guy who's, like, unable to make a living from his um, antique store? And I'm reading some into this because I'm not sure when he talks about attachment issues, it's not entirely clear that he means to his stuff. Under what circumstances is he going to hire a marketing guru? That seems totally... Well, it sounds like that that was sort of part of the 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 spark i guess that he would hire this marketing person because he can't sell his own stuff mm-hmm. but like, does, he, does he care to him or? like he doesn't want to sell his own stuff well i think so he's the spark to... might be losing the store for example or uh-huh. like having something repossessed or maybe in, in one thing i suggested in one of the notes is like what if somebody comes to his store and is like i want to buy your business and he's like no you know but then this thing happens. And so does he hire a marketing person or is that necessary or is it only necessary really that this woman comes to his store and he thinks that she stole this thing? You know, is that a, is that a necessary piece of the story? Right. The meat of the story is the fact that she steals something, not the fact I don't, like the marketing thing seems like a distraction. You know, right. It seems, really seems like uh, maybe an, an interesting and, and uh, intriguing woman comes into his antique store, this guy who doesn't really want to be around other people. And and sparks his interest in some way, and then when she's gone, he realizes that his favorite object has disappeared. It doesn't matter who she is; the fact that she she took this thing or is gone, and he decides she took it, and he must find her. Um, there you have a story, you know. And right. the whole thing about marketing and his store failing doesn't really, again, isn't really relevant to the actual uh, movement of uh, of the story itself. Right. You could jettison that entire thing of like the store not being successful. You could just make it not successful and not make it uh, like he's going to lose his store or something I'm and gonna, just make it about the attachment. I'm, I'm going to disagree and I and say that I actually do think that if he's in danger of losing the store, that creates a dilemma for the character of like whether he's going to go after this person or not. Because if, if he's about to lose the store, he has to make the choice. It's like, I can stay here and do what I should do and mind the store and mind my business or I can like go and pursue this slightly weird self-obsessed passion um, to go on this adventure to try and recover this object like that's a really that's a that's a dilemma yeah, I think yeah that's but right. that, that's a but I still think that's a background setup like he's a guy who is in a failing store and then one day this thing happens which is that this woman comes and makes off appears to make off with this uh, whatever this object is so the fact that the store is failing yes it's it's interesting background stuff because, like I said, with the mammoth stuff, I don't take that. I do actually believe a little bit of backstory and setting the scene uh, is actually useful. But um, but the the fact that the story is failing is just something about along with the fact that we learn through some interactions he has in the opening scenes, or whatever that he's he has attachment issues, whatever that m- ends up meaning that he's prickly around people or uh, he hides when people walk into the store, or whatever that is. Um, that certainly helps to kind of set things up. Um, but it's not really central to right. but then uh, the, the, spark, sto- the, the real story. Right. The spark is then that the thing disappears. The woman comes in, the thing disappears. And then he's got to chase it down. And basically... Right. It's a Tintin book, actually. It's like a, it, you know... It could be. It, yeah, I mean, it could be. Um, Tintin book with a whole heavy underlying how can we be people in the world part. Um, but the I think the, the main point from everything we're saying here is like, I don't think he's done his Mad Lib yet. Because his Mad Lib is, it starts with 
thing disappears mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Then it's like, what specifically is going to happen? Like, what? where do we go from here? And he's got to tell us those things. He's got to figure those things out. I mean, one uh, one cue to build on uh, in the Mad Lib, he says, you know, therefore he tracks her and then parenthetically with his non-specific set of skills, which I take to be a little bit, again, sort of self-deprecating that he hasn't really worked this out out yet. But that that's actually a very fruitful lead, I think. Like, what are his, what is his set of skills? Like, he is an antiquarian. He, he's a bit of a weird guy. He's a bit of an obsessive so maybe he actually, and as an antiquarian, you look for stuff. You know, you go to you go to markets, mm-hmm. you you go to dealers, and and you try to find precious things. And now this precious thing is missing, along with another precious person. So I think he probably does have a bunch of skills that once you start thinking about it, um, will would start um, coming to the surface. All right. One of the things we like to do is answer questions from the working group. So this week we have Christopher Green who asks, "When do you start to really think about theme?" Do you come to a project with themes slash armatures in mind and allow them to guide your ideas? Do you wait until after the basic elements are in place so that the themes you are already unintentionally dealing with can be divined and then strengthened? All of the above? I imagine that, as with most things, it depends on the project. I mean, I I don't know. I I guess some of this is kind of personal, right? Like, I know some people, you know, they they say, I want to do a story about honor. You know, right. Well, like from our interview last week with um, Jonathan Mitchell, he was saying that sometimes he comes at stories from the theme and builds a story around them and sometimes the other way around. And like Naughty or Nice, the story we were talking about comes out of a theme of the whistleblower, the idea of a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And then he built, you know, he got the idea for that theme from thinking about the the idea of the Naughty or Nice list. Um, But then he went sort of deep into the theme and then then built up who would who could the character be who could embody that. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think it is very much a personal decision. But that said, uh, a theme is one of various uh, devices you can use to to jumpstart a story idea. And in the case, uh, there's definitely a tradition in comics, especially you know comics anthologies. There's always anthologies coming. If you look on Kickstarter, there's always you know uh, a ser- anthology of comics about teddy bears or something like that. You know, and it just gives you a theme or you know about uh, whatever your first time having sex, that kind of thing. Um, and if you think about This American Life, you know, every week we choose a theme and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it's a way to structure um, your ideas and give your general stories and characters in your head a direction to, to aim towards. Um, so in that sense, it can be a good starting point. Um, but I'll just say in my own experience, uh, in my, my own creative work, usually I don't start with a theme in mind. I'll start playing around with some kind of story structure I think is interesting, like a palindrome, uh, a story that can read both ways. Um or you know something really weird like that, and it's part of the fun for me is then to start uh, figuring out what kind of characters, what kind of plot would fit in that structure, and very gradually as I work on that stuff, um, ideas from themes will will come out of the the structure of the story, out of the out of the story that I'm developing, and things like that. So uh, it's a kind of a back and forth. It's always there, there are various things that develop and nudge each other along as you're working on a story. Maybe, maybe we should distinguish between like capital T theme and lower T theme. Like I think the way you're talking about it, Matt, that's like sort of a a lower T type of theme where it's like theme is a way to, I don't know, as sort of like, 
don't know, a frame or something, not... It's to come up with a story idea. Like if it's a if it's a book about, it's a whole anthology about teddy bears, you're going to riff on teddy bears and think about what teddy, teddy bears mean to you and... Right. Well, that's, that's, not a good, that's not a good example because a teddy bear is actually a subject. I mean, not you mean my small team. But I mean, like the theme could be, you know, a book about loss, you know, that's, a loss is a yeah, theme. That is a know, theme. That's a, a big T, T. theme. Um, and so I am, I'm talking about capital T themes here. I used and, to... I, uh, I used to be like very, very anti the idea of sort of thinking about, uh, I don't know, your work in this in this in terms of theme. Like it seems very, very unorganic. It seems mm-hmm. very sort of putting the cart before the horse. Like if I'm going to do a story about like lost innocence, I mean, just like just me saying that it's going to be terrible. Like it is going to be overdone. It is going to be like hit you over the head like how can you I think it's often the case yeah. how how can you do how can you think about theme in this way but also like I, I don't know maybe maybe the idea is you think of a theme and then just sort of put it to the side I want to say a couple of different things first of all like I think interestingly Matt's comics like uh, Drawn Onward your recent comic that came out which is this double pal- palindrome the theme of the comic is directly related to the format of the comic and I will not spoil anything for anybody because you should all go get it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but the 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 underlying theme of what, uh, you know, of the character, what's happening with the characters is totally related to the form of the book. And that's often the case with your work, that it comes out of the form. So that's right. one and, way to produce well, it. And, it. and it comes precisely out of your, that same um, squeamishness around theme. Like, I don't want, I'm not going to do a story that's addressing, you know, uh, whatever, great big thing with a T. Um, and, and coming out this sort of sidelong way through... Uh, constraints and through formal structures is a way for that stuff to kind of emerge more gradually and organically out of the the work itself and not be something that I'm trying to impose my vision onto. Yeah. And and then another thing that I was thinking about in terms of how theme emerges um, is that in my work, um, I've discovered looking back really over many, many years of working that one of my central themes that I'm interested in is um, class, which I would never have thought setting out, you know, I, I wouldn't have planned that in a million years. You're a very classy lady. I don't <laughs> But I mean, you know, you look at La Perdida and it's about the the way that being American in Mexico um and the class difference that that implies and the different classes of Mexicans, you know, there's all these different kind of things going on that that cause misunderstandings and problems. And then, um, you know, when working on Trish Trash, you, that's very much about class and and power. It's about class and power. And like, even Life Sucks, my romantic comedy about vampires, is about class because the people who are at the center of that book are trapped in these dead end jobs because they don't have any money. And they're they're being held down by people of a higher social class and sort of it's like an economic you know, it's a book about the economy, man. You, um, so mean, and and so, like, I don't plan any of that stuff. But but once I figured that out about myself, I could I identified it very quickly when I would come up with a new story and find it intriguing. I would often find that theme inside of it, and then once I un- identify it, I can kind of play with it a little bit more clearly. Yeah, it's when when you finished a work, it's much easier to sort of pick apart the theme or whatever, um, you know, than it is. Th- while you're actually in the middle of it, you know, sometimes I think that while you're in the middle of the work, it's just best to figure, like, figure out why this is interesting. You know, you may not know why it's interesting at the time, but um, if it is interesting on a sort of, like, on a larger level, that probably means there's something going on there, even if you don't quite understand it yet. I think that if, if the point of the story is to make some 
like point that we live in a fallen world or something. Okay. And, and Enough that's with the air quotes, Mister. But but, <laughs> but I I do think that if if you're coming at a story with that in mind, that it's like I am doing the story to make this point. I think that that's a bad thing. I I don't think that that is a great place to start. This is bringing us back to our discussion about advocacy, though, because this is what people who do stories about advocating something, advocating some cause. This is what the problem they run into is that that theme is sitting on the top of everything and everybody, um, all the characters become little pawns within that theme. And you're just kind of pushing them around. It doesn't feel genuine. It's Maria makes tortillas, right? Yeah, Maria makes tortillas, exactly. So if you have that um, that situation, then you lose us because we don't – A, we don't believe it, you know, and B, you're, you're, you're assuming that we agree with you already, you know, that we're all on the same page about this thing. So I think as we were saying earlier about Levon's story, I think the way that that story could become a great story is by treating Ronnie's story like you would – you would come into it cold like you have you have no opinions at all and you just you research it from the base like huh what an interesting problem i wonder if it's true or not i wonder what i'll find out and you present it as you know straight up storytelling and and straight up character based arc and try to tell the story as compellingly as you can around this guy and or around your own discovery of this story um do that and i think you address this problem of theme as well just like i was saying with spark with this fictional story from from naughty or nice like you have the character you know what you want to talk about but basically then he's like okay well how is this going to function how do we get through this story how do we you know what kind of problems does it cause for this character when he is questioning santa's ethics you know in the the this the christmas machine you know how does that play out and once you get into that situation then you're on the right track That's it for episode 4.5, but there was so, so much we couldn't get to in this week's episode. I mean, raising baby boars, civil war battles over the meaning of home, investigating the hidden history between Tony Bennett and a classic Italian restaurant, told musically, by the way, and more. And the level of discourse about these stories is amazing. They're evolving and improving before our eyes. It really is such a great thing. So join the Out on the Wire working group and get involved. To get an invite to the group, head over to the show page at jessicaable.com slash podcast and sign up for the newsletter. And that's it. We're planning to take a break for a week next Monday. So if you want your Out on the Wire fix next week, you have to join. I'm going to be running a live hangout about story structure where participants can ask me anything live sometime next week. And I'll be polling members for the best time to do this, but it will be sometime November 3rd through 6th, 2015. If you missed the Hangout, it should be archived on YouTube. The last time I did this, I completely screwed that part up, so no promises. But so just show up. If you just show up, then you'll see it. <laughs> yeah, you laugh. At the show page, you can get show notes for all our episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, find links to all of our social media accounts, and find out about our Patreon, which is a great way to support the show. Um, in, in the Patreon um, for members, we have uh, the entirety of our interview with Jonathan Mitchell. So all that stuff I was just talking about with Nadia and Nice, that's all in there, um, as well as a whole long discussion about um, Sylvia's blood, which was super interesting as well. We also have extended versions of our Stephanie Fu interview from episode one, Iris' story about his reporting trip with the Twin Principles, and music downloads from the show. And we're even offering hand-drawn internet avatars for you or for a friend. We may start having sponsors at some point, 
and being a patron will give you access to ad-free versions of the show. You can find me on Twitter at JCCAble, Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch, and Matt is at M. Madden Comics. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. We'll see you in two weeks with episode five. You're not lucky. You're just good. See you then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.